for Easter services, you can give it to this person. It's a nice, tastefully done sort of invite thing. And uh, invite a friend to church. It's a great uh, Sunday to do that. Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship You this morning because You are the King. The King of kings and the Lord of lords as all these songs have been saying that we just sang. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to You. You are the Lord. And Jesus, we pray that today You would reign in our hearts. Lord, we've sung about You and I have some words prepared from a sermon to give, but... Lord, these words are so utterly impotent. They're so utterly weak. How can anyone describe your greatness and your glory? How can anyone communicate the glory of Jesus Christ? It's a hopeless task. And so, Jesus, our prayer is that you would come through the power of your Holy Spirit upon us now and enable us to see you in your regal glory, you who are the King. Lord, we pray that you would use the words of the songs, the words of the children's choir, the words of prayers and creeds and this message I've prepared. And Lord, that you would, by your powerful Holy Spirit, show us your greatness as King. And Lord, cause our hearts to love you and to desire to surrender to you. Lord, we really don't even know what we're saying when we say King. Here in this democracy, God, we don't even understand what it means to be under the absolute authority of a King. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, teach our hearts. And show us that living for you as our King is not a burdensome thing, but it is true freedom. That the more we surrender and submit ourselves to you, the more free and joyful our lives become. So, Lord Jesus, be with us now. We pray this in the name of, uh, in your name, Amen. So, um, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, yeah, you know, when in doubt, just go back to home base. Uh, you know, one of the major through lines in the Lord of the Rings, the book, as well as the, the uh, movies, is the story of Aragorn, who is the, the rightful heir of the throne of Gondor. And, and Gondor is this great kingdom in the story. And he, he's the king, but the problem is he hasn't been living as the king. He's, in fact, hardly anyone knows that he exists or that he actually is the king. Uh, he's been sort of living on the fringes of society as this uh, nomadic... Warrior, They call him a ranger. And he lives sort of in the fringe of society. He lives in the shadows. And so large part of the story is Aragorn, bit by bit, revealing himself to people, letting them know that he is the true king of Gondor, and, and sort of fulfilling his regal destiny. <clears throat> and what's interesting in the story is that as he tells 
larger and larger groups of people that he is this, this descendant of the great kings of Gondor is to see their reactions. And typically the reaction, initially anyway, is suspicion, hostility, nervousness. You know, people withdraw from this guy like, you're the who? You're the what? You know, the, oh, the king of Gondor, huh? Oh. And, and, and you get this initial sort of standoffish reaction. And I thought about it, and you know, that really makes sense. Because kings are threatening individuals. They're threatening. Uh, a king, by definition, is an absolute power. If someone really is a king, and not just like, you know, in England or something where they have figureheads, but, you know, a real king, like, like in the old days, I mean, they had absolute power. The king doesn't come knocking on our doors and say, you know, hi, I'm running for office, and I wonder if you'd, you know, <laughs> vote for me in November, and here's a pamphlet, you know. The king, is, he like rides him on his horse and he's like, kneel. And you kneel and if you don't kneel, off with your head and your head goes off. I mean, that's, kings have absolute power. They, they don't ask anyone's opinion, they just speak and it happens. That's what a king does. So, you know, for Aragorn to write up and say, I'm the king, um, you know, that, that changes things. He's, he's the king returning. In fact, you know, that's the final book in the series, The Return of the King. And the king is coming back. And the problem is, when the, ter- the king returns, when the king comes back, it changes everything. It messes up everything. And, and people are, you know, woo, the king's here. I mean, this is going to change my whole life if this really is the king. Um, and, and so people are sort of standoffish at first. But then what's interesting is, as the different characters in the story get to know Aragorn, they totally fall in love with him. And they become deathly loyal to him. As they get to know, you know his valor in battle, the, the way he fights like a lion, selflessly throwing himself against the enemies, and people are just in awe at his, his courage and his uh, strength. And, and they're in awe at his, his charisma and his wisdom and his compassion. People are falling in love with you know, Women are falling in love with him. Men are falling in love with him. It's, everybody wants to follow this guy. And if you've ever read the books or seen the movie... You know, by the end of it, you're like, I want to follow Aragorn, you know. <laughs> I wish I lived in Gondor. I, I would do anything for this guy. So, so wonderful job does Tolkien do at painting a portrait of this ideal leader that, that he just captures your heart and you want to follow him even though he's a fictional character. And, uh, you know, one of the most poignant examples of it in the book is, is the relationship between Aragorn and Boromir. Uh, for those of you who know the, the story, Boromir is... Uh, He's a warrior himself, and when he first meets Aragorn, he's kind of like, hmm, not sure about this guy. And he has good reason to, because uh, Boromir's father is the, and this is complex, like a soap opera, his, his father is the steward of Gondor. Because there's no kings in Gondor, right? So who's, who's running the place? Well, they have these guys called stewards. They're sort of taking care of the place until the king comes back. Well, his dad is the steward, and he's going to be the next steward. But now suddenly, here's the king, and, you know, Boromir's kind of out of a job. So initially, when he's like, oh, this is the king? Oh, right. And, and there's this kind of hostility between the two. But as the story goes on, Boromir comes to respect and love Aragorn. And finally, at the end of the first movie, I, mean, I hope I'm not ruining this. I hope you've seen this all by now. <laughs> Please, if you haven't, you know. Anyway, um, so Boromir is dying. He's been slain in battle by a bunch of orcs. And he's laying there, dying with arrows sticking out of his chest. And in his last breath, Aragorn comes to his side and, and the last thing Boromir says before he dies to Aragorn is, my king, 
You know, he, he's been wooed. His heart has been melted. Because as he's gotten to know this king, he's gone from suspicion and mm, to just, I would do anything for you. Well, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. And uh, Palm Sunday, of course, is the, the day we remember when Jesus you know, rode down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and all the people cut the palm branches, hence its name, and they waved the palm branches and they put them in the road in front of Jesus as he rode down into Jerusalem and people took off their cloaks and they threw them down and there's this huge this party. You know, it's like when the patriots went through town. You know, everyone's cheering and screaming. And it's this parade. It's what it is, a parade. And here comes Jesus riding on the donkey and people are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They were celebrating the return of the King. In fact, you could rename Palm Sunday. It's Return of the King Sunday. That's what it is. As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, He was the King returning. He was this prophesied Messiah. That's what Messiah is, the King. The Son of David, the ancient descendant of David, who finally would come and establish God's authority on earth, God's rule, God's kingdom. And that's what they were celebrating. That's why they were cheering. But, you know, like we said, kings are kind of threatening people because kings have absolute power. And that's why, while there were some people outside cheering for Jesus who had surrendered to him already, there were other people inside the city plotting his assassination and plotting an unfair trial and they're going to take him down. So, you know, kings threaten things. When the king comes in, he overturns things. And we know that in our own lives. Jesus is, he's wonderful, he's awesome, but when it comes down to it, and someone says, do you want to know Christ and follow him? It's like, hmm, I don't know. It's a little bit nervous. Because if I come to you and say, yeah, you should, you should check Jesus out. He's a, he's a religious teacher. You'd say, well, maybe I'll check out some of his teachings and maybe I'll adopt a few. Or if I said Jesus is a spiritual guru, we'd say, well, maybe I can learn something from him. But as soon as you say Jesus is the king, then it's like, ooh, wait a minute. Because if he's really the king, if, if all these things we're singing is, is who he is, then that means he has absolute authority over my life. And there's a big part of me that goes, when anyone says they have absolute authority over anything, and I go, I don't, I don't know. Because if Jesus is the king, that means he has, well, he deserves everything from me. He, he has my, my marriage is his. It means my money is his. It means my body, my thoughts, my career, my house. Everything is his. And, you know, if you're like me, that's, that's tough to swallow. Because I like being the king. <laughs> this little kingdom I call my life. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Jesus. But if you just get to know this king, if you could just get to know him, if you could just spend time with him, if you could just see what this king is like, you would follow this king. You would worship this king. It was like Aragorn. Once you get to know him, you, you would die for this king. This is, oh, I can't even begin. Words fail me to describe what this king is like. You know, why would people surrender themselves to a person they can't even see with their physical eyes? Why are there so many Christians? And it's because once you get to know this king, you'll do anything for him. You will love him. He is the greatest king. 
And He can melt the hardest heart. He has captured me. He's besieged me, surrounded me, and captured Jeremy's little kingdom, and I've never been happier. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me, is to surrender to this king and find true freedom in him. So what I want to do this Palm Sunday is just look at the king. Allow us a little time to get to know him afresh and to fall in love with him. In chapter 61 of Isaiah... Verses 1 to 3 is a description of the king and the nature of his kingdom. You know, who is this Jesus? What am I really buying into when I say I want to follow Christ? And in verses, chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, we have this picture of this wonderful king. It says in verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is the king talking here. He's going to preach good news to the poor. Now maybe you say, whoa, 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 king? How do you know that's the king? It doesn't say king. In fact, the word king does not appear in all of chapter 61. So how do we know this is the king? Well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is because we've seen this character before in Isaiah. This is not his first appearance. This guy who has the Holy Spirit's power on him and goes out to bring justice to those who are in need. Uh, we've seen this character before. In fact, put your finger here in 61 and flip back to Isaiah chapter 11. Here's another glimpse of this person, this individual. Look at chapter 11, verse 2, or verse 1. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, Jesse, as you know, is the father of King David. So, this is another way of saying there's going to someday be a future descendant of King David who's going to re-sprout. You know, it looked as if in Isaiah's day that the, the kingdom of David was going to be destroyed forever and all of God's promises were going to fail. But Isaiah says, no, someday that old stump's going to send out a new shoot. There's going to be a new king, a new descendant of David. And look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Verse 4. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So when you go back to chapter 61, it's the same guy. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's the same uh, character. What's also interesting is when you look at outside of the book of Isaiah at the rest of the Old Testament, uh, there's only two instances in the whole Old Testament outside of Isaiah where somebody is anointed with oil and as a result receives empowerment from the Holy Spirit to do a task. There's only two other instances. One is when King Saul is anointed and receives the power from the Holy Spirit. The other is when King David is anointed and receives power from the Holy Spirit. So what this is, I mean, make no mistake, this is kingship language. Yeah, the word king isn't here, but we're talking about the king. And, and given the Old Testament background, this can only be talking about the king. This is kingship uh, parlance through and through. So the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's his job. He's going to preach good news to the poor. And the word poor there, I think, is, is a little bit uh, too narrow of a translation. The Hebrew word is more like uh, someone who's just needy, who's humble, who's broken down. 
So it can include financial poverty, but, but it really it has a lot wider connotation. It's, it's someone who's in desperate straits, who's in dire need. That, that's what this person is. And this king comes to preach good news to the poor. This is not a Saddam Hussein. This is not some guy who comes into power to build uh, elaborate palaces for himself while his people are crushed underneath the wheels of his regime. No, no, this is a good king. And he comes to preach good news to the poor. That's who this king is. And then as you look at the rest of the verses, what he does here is is he tells us sort of the content of the good news. So that's the summary to preach good news to the poor. What's the good news? Well, that's what we get in the rest of the verses. And and I'm not going to go into every single phrase here, but let me just point out three things that are part of the good news. Uh, Three aspects of this king. We want to spend some time looking at this king, seeing what he's like. Let's just get three glimpses of him from verses uh, 1 and 2. The first is this. The king is a healer. It says he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. The king comes with healing in his hands. This king is, is a king who mends. The, the great monarch is going to be a great physician. He's going to heal people. And certainly when Jesus was on earth, that's what he did. He healed all kinds of people. And that was one of the things we remember about him. He would heal lepers and people who couldn't walk walked and people couldn't see could see and he he healed people's bodies but as you see from this verse it's more than just our bodies that he's come to heal he's come to bind up the brokenhearted jesus heals broken hearts and and when it says they're bind up that's an interesting word that, that word bind up in the book of isaiah it occurs four other times and it's always used interestingly it's always used figuratively in the book of isaiah so it's a very figurative word in this context. In other words, it's not that this king is going to go around putting slings on people's arms, even though he can do that. But more importantly, this king is going to go around healing us from the brokenness that comes from sin. That's how the word is used in Isaiah. It has to do with healing from the results of sin. Whether our sins, which there's a lot, or the sins of other people against us. And Jesus heals those sins. He He touches those places in our souls. Um, This is so wonderful. He's not just coming to save us eternally for heaven, which He is. But when you come to Christ, the oil of salvation soaks down into your heart and you experience healing now to a degree. He heals now the deep places of our heart. You know, that's one of the fun things I get as a pastor is I get this kind of peek into a lot of people's lives and a lot of your lives and I get to hear your individual stories and, and one of the things I get to watch is, is how Christ heals broken hearts of people that I know heals your heart you guys have told me stories you've sat in my office we've hung out after a service you've told me stories of your lives and, and I, you know, I, of course I wouldn't but I could just sit here and tell stories of people in the church and how Christ has healed their hearts healed the, the broken places that are deep within you know Christ takes adulterers and alcoholics and aborters and ex-cons and you know, liars and bad parents and you know, all, all the, the moral failures of our lives. And, and he takes people who have no hope and who are just broken because of bad choices and sinful choices and, and he brings a new day of hope. He brings forgiveness. He brings freedom. And I've seen it so many times. And then there are people who have been hurt by others. I, I've seen people in this church who have been abused uh, physically, sexually, whatever. And you, know, you think, how could that ever be healed? 
And Christ heals. Slowly but surely, He can heal those wounds. And, and His power can reach into the deep, secret places of the heart where no pastor can touch and no therapist can touch and no antidepressant drug can touch. And he goes into those deep crevices that only God can know in your soul that maybe you're not even aware of. And, and He brings healing. And it, it, what a great God we have. He heals hearts. He heals people. He can heal your heart. That's who this king is. So yeah, it's a little nerve-wracking to follow a king, but I'll tell you what, once you get to know this king, this king heals and touches. But notice the second thing he does. Not only does he heal, he also frees. He says he has sent me in verse 1 to bind up the broken heart. And number 2, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And again, I, I think this releasing of prisoners is figurative in Isaiah, if you look at it other places. In other words, I don't think this king's going to come and his first job is going to be to ride around to every jail and, you know, knock out the guards and open up the doors. I mean, that's not the point. In fact, they didn't really have jails back then the way we do today. They didn't have, you know, prisons long term. That's not how they punished people as much. You know, prisons were more for holding someone until they got punished, which was usually like something painful. So, so it's, it, you know, it's a totally different system. So when it's talking about releasing prisoners from bondage, again, I think that the emphasis here is upon the bondage of sin. The way that sin enslaves and traps people. Jesus said in John chapter 8, He said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But then He went on to say about Himself, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. You are free indeed. So the freedom that Christ brings us is, is really a freedom from sin. Because sin, you know, sin enslaves. Sin looks great. Boy, it looks wonderful. You think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. And it always ends up trapping us. It has this stickiness to it. And it, we, we get stuck within it. Um, you know, Satan says, come on. Come on in the elevator of sin. I'll take you up to the penthouse. It's great up there. You're going to love it. Come on, come on in. You go, oh, okay. And we get in the elevator. The door shuts. And he goes, oops. And he hits the button to the sub-basement. You <laughs> know? And when the door's open, we're in the dungeon. That's how it works. Sin promises you a palace, but it always delivers a penitentiary. That's how it works. It looks so good, but once we bite that apple, we find that instead of gaining freedom, we've lost freedom. And you think, oh, I, I don't want to follow Christ because, you know, man, I don't, I don't want to lose my freedom. I want to be free to whatever you want to do. It's like, you're not free, man. You're a total slave. If you want to be free, then give it up for Christ. And then you'll find out what real freedom is all about. He brings freedom. Uh, and, you know, we could think of plenty of examples of this. I mean, the, the obvious one that jumps to your mind is you know, alcohol. Alcohol is such an enslaving kind of force. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not a teetotaler. I think it's fine to have a beer or a glass of wine with a meal or something. But, you know, my point is, like, how many people do you know who drink on a regular basis? Never get buzzed and never get drunk. People don't drink in moderation. That's the thing. I mean, it's possible to, but very few people really do who, who actually drink. So, you know, it's this enslaving power. And yet it's presented in such a warm way. You know, like, I mean, come on, total honesty here. Let's kick off the little Baptist thing. And, you know, what are the best commercials on TV? <laughs> beer commercials. They're the best commercials. I laugh my head off at beer commercials. That's the only reason I watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch sports. 
I just want to see the beer commercials. They're, they're hilarious. It's the best comedy on TV, I'll tell you. you know, that's, how, that's the presentation. Woohoo, fun, hilarious, creative. The reality is the 12-step meeting with people whose lives are just screwed up because their families have been enslaved to alcohol for, for generations and they're just broken people. You know, they should show that 12-step meeting right after the commercial or something because that's the reality. You know, and, and again, like I said, I'm not a teetotaler, although I do respect people who are and I understand why they are because there's a good argument to be made for it because it's, it's such a powerful force. And you think it's going to be fun, think it's going to be, woo, the commercials, but that's, that's the reality. Uh, lies enslave us. And you tell a lie. And you got to tell another lie to cover up the lie. And you got to tell a couple more lies to cover up those lies. And pretty soon lying becomes a pattern. And pretty soon you become a liar. And, and, and you know, once you're into such a pattern of lying, you start to believe the lies you tell yourself. And you start to believe the lies you've told others. And, and pretty soon you, you can't even tell a straight story without embellishing it a little bit. Because it's, there's so much distortion that's just become part of the pattern. And you're trapped in lies. And, and you thought lies would free you and get you out of the mess. Instead, they just sunk you deeper into it. Um, bitterness, resentment is an enslaving sin. You know, Jesus tells us to forgive. We're commanded by God to forgive and to let go of hatred and to resentment. But uh, uh, bitterness and resentment, it just feels so good at first. But it, it traps you and enslaves you. Um, you know, I've heard someone say that unforgiveness is drinking the rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. <laughs> That's what it is. It just hurts you. I, Rich Chamberlain, our youth pastor, and I were hanging out with a woman just recently, and she had just come by the church, and she told us right up front, "Hey, I'm an atheist." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, we're fine." You know, we just had a good conversation. Really nice person. Great, interesting conversation. And we're just trying to explain, you know, Christianity to her, and she was kind of we're going back and forth. And the topic of forgiveness came up, and it's just suddenly this big, strong reaction. And she said, "She's oh, forgiveness." She goes, "There are some things that in my life, and one thing in particular." She says, "I cannot forgive. I could never forgive, and I do not want to forgive, and I will never forgive." <laughs> so, yeah, she's honest. That's good. <laughs> And, and she said, I, I just can't forgive. And, you know, we're saying, oh, but it's so bad for you not to forgive. And she goes, I don't care. She goes, I just could never, ever do it. And so I said to her, I said, you know, you're right, actually. You can't forgive. You don't have the power to forgive some things. Uh, you, you just can't do it. Things that really deeply wound. I said, you know, you're right. I, I said, that's why I said, or you have to be born again. I said, that's why you have to become a born-again Christian. Because what it means to be born again, I know that phrase is like, but you know, what, all, it, all it means is that God changes your heart. It just means God changes your heart and makes you into a new person. And the Bible is so clear that you cannot follow Christ unless you are born again. You have to be born again. If you're not born again, you are not a Christian. It's just biblical teaching. And I said, you have to be born again. Only by God's power is your heart going to be changed so that you're able to forgive this stuff that people have done to you. And be free from bitterness and resentment. Because otherwise, it just it dra drags you down. And the person you're angry at just goes on their merry way and they have a good life and you don't. This is stupid. But this king comes to set us free. He not only comes to heal broken hearts, he comes to set us free from the enslavement of sin. You know, I could sit down right now and I bet we could just spend, from now till noon, different people in the church, form a line, come up, and tell how Jesus has set them free from sin in different ways in their lives. It's such a beautiful, powerful thing. But there's a third area. 
Third thing that this king does. I tell you, this is some kind of king, huh? Oh, yeah, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus, but just look at what he is. He heals, he frees. And then the third thing is that he saves. Look at verse 2. He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The, the year of the Lord's favor. Now that word favor in uh, the book of Isaiah is an important word and it really is a synonym for grace is what the word means. So in the book of Isaiah, it's Isaiah's way of saying grace. When God shows favor, what it means is that he has a people in front of him who have rebelled against him, who are sinful, and God could destroy them, but instead he chooses to show favor toward them and to show grace. It's a synonym for compassion and grace. And so this is what the Savior does. He comes to show mercy on rebellious subjects like us. And people, you know, this is the bottom line. I don't know. I was trying to find out some clever way to talk about this, but I just couldn't. So I'll just be really blunt and unpolitically correct. We are sinful people. That's it. We are a wicked and rebellious people. In God's eyes, we are all bad people. We are. We, we have not lived morally pure lives, mentally, with our lips, with our actions. We have not loved each other. We haven't come close to loving our neighbors. We haven't even come close. I don't even think I really know what it means to truly love deeply the way Christ commands me to love. We don't love God. We don't love God the way He deserves. My best moments of praise are just so pathetic compared to what God really deserves. Um, we are sinful people. And as a result, what sin deserves is condemnation. Sin draws forth from God anger and wrath and holy judgment on sin. You know, where do you stand with God? And the answer is, without Jesus, every single one of us is going to hell forever. That's the answer. God's, you know, like I said, I wish I had some nice way to sort of tell some fuzzy story. I just don't know any other way to say this. Without Christ, we are under the condemnation and judgment of God. And it's like, Hell? Is that a real place? I mean, isn't hell... I've heard people say this several times. Isn't hell really something we create in our own minds? Don't we create a hell for ourselves? And, and by sort of, you know, destructive thoughts, we just create hell in our own minds. And boy, that would be great. <laughs> if that's all it was. <laughs> At least I know how to get out of that. No, no. Hell is the place God is going to throw people who aren't forgiven in Christ. It's a place. And, and that's, that's our destiny. And so this king comes. God sends his representative. Jesus comes with the authority of God to establish God's kingdom. And he has the sword of judgment at his side. But instead of taking it out and smiting the world as he should, he instead hands that sword to a bunch of Romans. And he says, crucify me. And, and he takes the sword of divine judgment upon himself. Have you ever heard of a king like this who would die to pay for the sins of the people who sinned against him? There's never been a story like this. What a king this is. I mean, this is why we call it Holy Week. Because what is more sacred than God himself sacrificing himself for me? That Jeremy, who should be cast under the judgment of God and trampled down, is set free. 
and favored while Jesus takes his place. The favor of God, the mercy of God. You know, you know Palm Sunday was in those days. They didn't call it Palm Sunday back in Jesus' day because it was obviously the first Palm Sunday. It was the, uh, the tenth day of Nisan. The fourteenth day of Nisan at twilight is when they had the Passover feast and it began. But the tenth day of Nisan, you know what day it was? It was the day when all the Israelites would gather together and choose their Passover lamb that they were going to sacrifice. And so here comes the Passover lamb, Jesus riding down the hill to be sacrificed and the people are choosing him. This is our king. And, and so Palm Sunday is about choosing the Passover lamb. It's about letting Christ die for us. That, that the king who is a lion should just let himself be killed like a lamb. That's the amazing story of Easter. So that I can be forgiven. And so now God looks at Jeremy and he's happy with me. He loves me. He's forgiven me. He delights in me, which is so ridiculous. But it's because I'm clothed with Jesus and not with myself. Jesus has cleansed me and forgiven me. That's how I can stand before God. What a king. You know. What a perfect day this would be for you to give your life to the king, to choose this lamb. Wouldn't this be a perfect day, Palm Sunday, if you haven't given your life to Christ before, if you haven't ever been saved by Christ and truly followed him? I can't think of a better day to do it than than this day. And I know there's a part of you that's like, I don't know, this is a little strong, I'm not sure. You know, uh, I understand before I became a Christian, I wrestled with it. I, I had about a six-month period before I became a Christian where I was in what you call the throes of salvation. It was just a very painful period of my life because I, I finally got it all. I understood that Jesus died on the cross for me. I understood I was a sinner. All these facts had come into my head. But there's that part of me that was like, you know, it's like the bungee cord will hold me. It's firmly attached. I believe it. I've seen others do it. But now I'm on the ledge. And, you know, will I, I give my life to Christ? And, and I came to realize that, that I couldn't even believe in Jesus without his help because I'm such a slave to sin. Even faith in Christ, which is our response to Jesus, is a gift from him because we're so trapped in our sins. So, but finally, after six months, I, God touched my heart and enabled me to come to faith in Jesus. And I've never looked back. It's been so awesome. It's been the greatest decision in my life. I, I want Christ more than anything else. You know... Some of the best moments of my life was when I stood actually right here on this platform, right there, and said my wedding vows to my wife. When I held my first children in my arms. Those are wonderful moments. But I'll tell you what, they are nothing compared to Christ in my life. And I would give up all of those things to have Christ. Because He is everything. I would die for Him. I, I hope. I, I think I would. I, I would love to. He's, he's so wonderful. So what a perfect day for you to come to Christ and give your life to Him. And this is a great day for us as Christians to kind of prepare ourselves for Holy Week. Uh, it's, it's a day, I don't know, if Christ is the king, to, I guess to re-surrender ourselves, for lack of a better word. Because even as a Christian, you kind of have to keep surrendering yourself. You, I don't know, you keep taking it back. It's very irritating. But uh, we, we have to re-surrender our lives to Christ. And that's the whole Lent thing. You know, Lent, you give up something for Lent. You know, the, the point of Lent isn't to go without chocolate. That's not the point of Lent. <laughs> Although if you do, I'm... I'm amazed at you. That's great that you can do that. Uh, but, you know, that's not the point. The point isn't to go on a diet. The point is 
of Lent is to, is to surrender your whole life to God and to say, all right, God, it's time for the audit. Here's all the books. Here's all the books. This is my life, Jesus. Look at it. You're the king. Do with me what you want. Is there things in my life that need to go? Are there things in my life that need to be added? This is my life. And so I think that's one way that we can prepare ourselves for Holy Week as Christians is to, again, just open the books up for Jesus. And, and sometime this week, just get on your knees before God in a quiet place and say, God, search my heart and make me more like Christ. I surrender to you again. There's a story told about Dwight Moody. who was a famous evangelist of the 19th century. and Thousands of people came to faith through Moody. And uh, he, was, he would go around to different towns and hold these big evangelistic crusades, you know, kind of like Billy Graham does. And uh, there was this one town where they were thinking about bringing him, and the association of ministers in the town got together, and they're talking about Moody. Should we bring Moody? Shouldn't we bring Moody? What should we do to help Moody come? And, and you know, the, for some reason, it just rubbed this one young pastor the wrong way. And he's like, what is it all about? Moody, Moody, Moody. Everyone's talking about Moody. He says, you know, what is it? Does Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit or something? And this wise old pastor said, mm, no, he doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. He said, but you see, the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Dwight Moody. Which is why God is using this man. And I think that's what Palm Sunday is about. It's about the king coming and us allowing him to have a monopoly. To have all the colors on the board. <laughs> to, to own completely our lives. And to surrender to him. And as we as a church completely surrender ourselves to Christ, this church will become a place where people will be healed, where people will be set free, and where people will be saved. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this King. Jesus, I love you. Forgive my faltering service, my King. You've done so much for me and I've done nothing for you. But I thank you that it doesn't matter because your love for me is not based upon my job performance. Your love for me is based upon yourself. Jesus, I pray that you might help us, that you might enable us to completely surrender our lives to you afresh this Palm Sunday. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is on the fence. I understand where they're coming from, God, and I just pray that you would you would show them, Jesus, how beautiful you are, how wonderful you are, that you would convince them of their dire need of salvation, that you would let them, if, if necessary, feel the fires of hell, to realize that your judgment is real, to realize that sin has consequences. And then, Lord, let them see the power of the cross, that there can be forgiveness and a new life with you. Lord, I pray, make them born again. Change their hearts so that they have faith. Lord God, be at work in our midst. We don't want to just talk about Christianity or go through empty rituals. We want to live for you, Jesus, in power and reality. So God, do your work in us today. And I pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Would you take the hymnal? And would you turn to number 347? And can it be? And let's stand and let's join together.